And in the text, Father, my prayer is the same every week, that you would speak, that the truth would be yours and not of my own. And that the word, Father, would do its great work in this body to build us up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to prepare for the work you have before us in our service to you while we wait for your return. And let this day be one more day along that path. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chapter 27. We're picking up again in verse 18, as my uh, notes tell me. So that's where you should turn right now. Chapter 27, as I mentioned last week, is an awesome display of God's sovereignty working through the sin of men. And in this chapter, you have four actors, each of them in their own way, absorbed in their own desires, their own motivations. They are all living their own sinful life, all of them guilty of sin in some degree. But each is moving in relationship to one another with the sin of the father, Isaac, really at the center of it all, driving all of the others in the behaviors that you see in this family. But above all of them, above all of these four actors in their little individual lives of selfish sin, you have God the father on the throne working to bring about his will, his desires in keeping with his promises. Everyone in this story will pay a price for their sin. Yet no one's sin will stand in the way of God's plan and his purpose. That's the mystery of how God works through the lives of men. And that's the beauty, in a sense, of this chapter. Last week we saw the conspiracy between Rebekah and Jacob as they try to stop Isaac from giving the birthright to Esau, to the wrong son. And their solution, Rebecca and Jacob's solution, is a classic example of two wrongs do not make a right. Esau hasn't even returned yet from the field, and they're now about to pounce on dad, on poor defenseless Isaac. And I'm saying that with a sense of irony, of course. And so now the time has come for that encounter. We step back in at that point. Let's go there now. Chapter 27, verse 18. And speaking here of Jacob, it says, and then he came to his father and said, my father. And Isaac said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have made it or how is it that you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me, and I will eat of my son's game, that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate. He also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments... He blessed him and said, see the smell of my son. It's like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. 
At the moment the meal is ready, we know Jacob has been preparing to do what Esau was sent out to do, and his mom's helping him with the meal preparation. At the moment that that's ready and that he's wearing all the goat skin on his neck and on his arms, Rebecca deems him ready to go in. So though she's not mentioned, it's fairly obvious she's behind the scenes. She sends him in. And as we watch this scene play out, let's remember something that's very important to understanding what's happening here. Jacob is the rightful owner of the birthright. The storyline at this point often goes something like this within the the cultural view of the text, the Christian cultural view. It's Jacob sneaks and deceives and steals the birthright. I know I've heard that. Maybe you've heard that from somewhere else as well. But if you look at the text, that's not what's represented, not entirely. Jacob already owns the birthright. He doesn't need to steal it. He owns it. But he is deceiving his father so as to prevent his father from giving it to the wrongful person. And Isaac's refusal to listen to his wife or to listen to the Lord or even just to honor the lawful sale that's already taken place has left Jacob with few options, or so it would seem. And so Jacob enters the tent with the intention of deceiving his father. Now, he initiates the conversation here. He calls out to his father. He says, Father. And then Isaac replies. But you notice immediately Isaac starts to suspect something. Isaac says, who are you, my son? That's sort of an ironic statement, isn't it? It's like the statement, no, Lord. When Peter speaks to Jesus about his coming crucifixion, no, Lord. Those two words never go together, right? That's an incongruent statement. There's no such thing as no and Lord. He's a Lord and you say yes or You don't think he's Lord, in which case you say no. Here it's the same thing. Who are you, my son? Well, of course, what he means is, which son are you? And that statement, that question from Isaac, it confirms for us that Isaac's eyesight here is more than just poor. The man is blind by any reasonable definition. He might be able to discern light and dark or fuzzy forms, maybe, but that's the extent of it. He can't even make out someone's features well enough to know if they are someone he recognizes. That's effectively blindness. So Isaac's blind at this point, and that's what's given opportunity for this whole thing to take place, of course. So Jacob gives a response to the question, and this is Jacob's first lie. There's going to be three of them before this scene ends. This is the first time Jacob lies. He declares that he is Esau, the firstborn. And that he has done just as Isaac has instructed. His phrase here is very interesting. For example, how often do you or I, as we speak to our parents, if they hear us coming around the corner or if we call on the phone and they don't immediately recognize us? uh, Who is this again? I don't say this is Steve, your firstborn. I could. It's legitimately the case in my particular situation. But I don't say that. I just say it's Steve. Don't you remember me, Mom? In his case, he doesn't have to say I'm the firstborn. It's a little more cultural, perhaps, because patriarchal society put a lot of emphasis on that. But that wouldn't have been normal. No more so than for us. His phrase reminds us of why this moment has even been made necessary. In fact, I read it with a touch of sarcasm. Jacob is resentful of the fact that he's in this situation because of Isaac's preference for Esau, the firstborn despite the fact that God has made clear that it would not be the firstborn who received his blessing. Isaac has stubbornly determined to show preference for the cultural expectation of the firstborn over his respect for God's desires and God's instructions. Jacob knows this. Rebecca knows this. And I think in his heart of hearts, Isaac knew this. But it wasn't enough for him to change his sinful ways. And in this moment, Jacob, in a sense, 
without giving himself away, takes a little stab at dad. Now, Isaac immediately shows this suspicion here because the voice is not the right voice. No matter what he could do to hide his appearance, it's apparent Jacob couldn't fake the voice very well if he even tried. And dad picks up on that. I think there's another side to this, though. I think Isaac has a guilty conscience. Guilty because he knows he's doing the wrong thing. Guilty because his whole intent was to be secretive and to do this in a way that held the knowledge back from Jacob and from Rebekah, which is what you do when you're doing the wrong thing, right? You you cover your tracks. And I've noticed this in my own life. I don't do this very often, thankfully, but it's been there. And I'm sure it's been there for all of us at some point. When we're doing the wrong thing, we have a heightened sense of being detected. You know, when I'm driving the speed limit, I never give a thought to whether there's a policeman around the corner. I'm not even thinking about it. When I'm intentionally speeding, which, as I said, I don't normally do, but if I happen to have a bad day and I'm going down the road a little too fast, what is the first thing on my mind? I heard a great analogy about the fear of the Lord in a similar kind of example. If you're going down the highway and you're speeding and you see police lights on top of a car right over the horizon, what's the first thing you do? You hit the brake. That's your guilt, recognizing your jeopardy, and then kicking in to stop your behavior. And then as you pass the cop, what do you do? Where are you looking the whole time you pass the cop? That rearview mirror, aren't you? Why? Did he catch me? Am I in trouble? Is he moving? Looks like he's moving. No, I guess not. Ooh, okay. And then he disappears in the rearview mirror. Now what do you do? You don't have to answer that question, but... For a lot of us, some of us, once in a while anyway, it's back to where we were, right? In a sense, that's what fear of the Lord is. Fear of the cop is what made you change your behavior. And the Bible's call is for us to have an ever-present fear of the Lord because the effect of that is the governor on our behavior because it will help us please him more to sense his ever-present view of our life, his ever-present judgment. And in the same sense... I think you see Isaac here concerned with who he's talking to because there's a side of him that's already heightened in its awareness that he might get caught, that he might be in trouble, that things might not work out. And so he's a little more suspicious than he might have been if it had just been a normal encounter in a tent. That's, by the way, a a form of grace, I think, in our conscience that God has implanted in us, this sense of being in trouble, of being guilty. So that it will cause us to reevaluate our behavior sometimes. It certainly is there in children. You see it very plainly in the lives of young children. So Isaac's first question is, how did you get here so quickly? And you can tell he's already trying to find out if he can trust the person. Now, Jacob here lies for the second time in response to that question. He says, the Lord caused it to happen. Now, what he's saying is the Lord caused me to find this wild game quickly and kill it and make it back here in such a short period of time. That's the essence of what Isaac was asking. And that's the essential essence of the response. But though that's a lie, it's a bold faced lie. There is actually an element of truth to it in this sense. Jacob was standing in this tent in this moment because the Lord had given Rebecca the insight to know about the plan that Isaac had hatched. Because God brought that knowledge to Rebecca, it allowed Rebecca to prepare this response and put Jacob in this position. And therefore, in that sense, and only in that sense, 
It's true to say that the Lord God has caused this to happen to Jacob. But of course, that's not what Jacob meant. So I am not in any way trying to mitigate the lie. The lie is a lie. But the Lord here is ultimately responsible for these circumstances. I wonder if that's why Jacob answered the way he did. That he used this this sort of vague answer because a conscience that he had made him feel uncomfortable about stating plainly these lies that he's speaking. It is worth noting he invokes the name of the Lord here in participation with this lie that I think increases the degree of offense to some extent. Now, at this point, Isaac is confused, and that's apparent by what he says next. As far as Isaac knows, the only son that would have had any idea about this plan and would have therefore known to get the stew and come in and so on, the only son who knew that was Esau. And so it's it's reasonable to assume this person is Esau, because how else would there have been any other son in the tent? But then again, the voice is the voice of Jacob. And even though his eyesight's going bad, he still knows the sound of his son's voices. So perhaps under any other circumstance, he might have not made much of the difference and just assumed his hearing was playing tricks on him. But in this circumstance, where there's so much on the line, he's extra sensitive. Because this is no ordinary moment here. Isaac is engaged in an underhanded sidestepping of one son in favor of another. And he knew that if Jacob were aware of the plan, Jacob would try to stop him. So that causes him to question whether or not that's what's going on. So he asks for more proof. He says, Jacob, I want you to go over here. I want to touch you. I want to feel you. And then he says in verse 21, Jacob, I want to know if you are really Esau. You you can't get any plainer than that. Isaac actually says, I don't trust you. I think you might be Jacob. He only has two sons. And so... After taking hold of him, Esau concludes, well, your voice sounds like Jacob, but I have to admit, you're pretty hairy. You must be Esau. Look, if goat skin felt like Esau, Esau is one hairy dude. Right? Then in verse 23, it says, Isaac, after he felt his hands, look at the end of that verse, it says, he blessed him. Now, that's a source of some confusion for folks, because we don't see the blessing here. We see it actually a few seconds later after additional questions. And so we wonder, well, is this the blessing or is this a different blessing? Actually, the statement is proleptic, which is a fancy word that means a statement of what will happen even before it happens. We have a saying you'll hear sometimes it's proleptic. We'll say something like, he was a dead man the moment he entered the room. He was a goner as soon as he saw her. Right? What we're saying is the end result was already a set certainty even as the circumstances began. And in this case, Moses is saying these deceptions are working to eventually bring about the blessing. But we just haven't reached that moment yet. So even though Isaac is moving toward the blessing, he's not fully convinced yet. He asks again, are you really Esau? Obviously, he still had some doubt. And in response, we have Jacob's third lie. He says, I am. That's the plainest lie of all of them. And at that point, Isaac decides, I'm going to have to try the stew anyway, so let's get that part over with. Bring me the stew. He enjoys it, but not only that, he has some wine, so he has a meal. And then finally, as a last proof, he says, come over here and let me kiss you. Now, that's actually subterfuge. He's not interested in the kiss per se. He wants to get the son that much closer to him so that he can smell him. Because there was obviously a difference 
between how these two boys smelled based on where they spent their time. And as he comes again and kisses, he smells the clothes of Esau, which was part of the deception. And he says, ah, you smell like a field blessed by the Lord. Must be Esau. This is one of my favorite verses of the Bible. Genesis 27, 27. Remember this verse, and here's why. It is the perfect verse, in my opinion, for showing God's sovereignty and man's sin working side by side. Now, how do I see that? Well, I want you to look, first of all, at Isaac's sin here. Isaac's sin is basically his preference of Esau. Now, why do I say that? Well, Esau's a worldly man. We've already established that. He's a worldly man. He's a man who does the exciting, worldly, forbidden things that Isaac himself is not allowed to do. Esau's the hunter, goes out into the field. Isaac, he's a wanderer, he's a shepherd, he stays in the tents, like now his son Jacob does. Esau gets to spend his days roaming the the hillsides in the wilderness, out in the field. He doesn't have to remain back in the community. And so all of this time, Isaac has preferred this son because he gets to live vicariously through Esau. Esau gets to do all the things that Isaac's flesh would love to do, but because of his following of the Lord God and the lifestyle that that created, he's not permitted to do. Now, I'm not saying hunting is bad. Remember, we covered all of this when we looked at the story of Esau in the beginning. We're not saying the hunting in and of itself is the problem. We're saying it's indicative of something much more important. And in Esau's case, it was indicative of a man who rejected his father's heritage and his grandfather's heritage and what God called them to do in their life. And he chose a different path for himself, the worldly path, which then gives evidence to us that he had an ungodly, unfaithful heart. Isaac knows this. He's no idiot. We've got to give him some credit. He sees this about his son. But the son himself, Esau, is a man who lives the life that Isaac, at least a part of him, is jealous for. The way the world attracts all of us in one way or another. It's so bad, in fact, that just the smell of the field on Esau's clothing gives Isaac comfort. And in this case, it seals the deception. It finishes him off. Isaac's carnal display here may be a little strange to us because in our day and in our world today, we don't celebrate hunting in the field as what we do in Texas. But we don't celebrate it in the same way that he is choosing to celebrate it, right? But that's just a cultural difference, a historic difference. The essence of it is still true for us today. Isaac's spirit was called to want the things of God. Your spirit, my spirit, in union with the Holy Spirit, we are called to glory in, to want for the things of God. What he wants, we should want. What he approves, we should approve. What he does not approve, we should not approve. God calls us, therefore, to turn our back on the world and set our hope on him and his promises. That's the basics of Christian living in a nutshell. While Isaac has certainly done those things, he has certainly become a man of God. He has faith in God's promises and he is living according to that faith by and large. Nonetheless, there was a part of him, evidently, that still felt enough of attraction to that world, the world he was called to leave behind, that he could find something attractive in a man like Esau. Perhaps he had a part of him that would have loved to be like 
his son to go out in the field, to live in the cities, to enjoy the things that the world enjoyed. Now, we don't envy the world the same way Isaac did. We don't have the same cultural desires, perhaps. We have other things, though. We have our safe rebellions. Mostly our Christian life is filled with Christian habits and Christian worldviews and Christian practices. And we understand our call not to be of the world, but to be in the world. We understand these things. But the flesh has not given up on this world. Our spirit may have, but the flesh is still strong in its desire. So here's what I see happening quite often, like what I see here with Isaac. We find ways to indulge our flesh without having to jump in with both feet. That's the safe rebellion I'm talking about. I could list a million examples, and we all know the pattern, but I can put them into three categories without listing specifics. Here are the three ways I think we tend to do this. Sometimes we're just like Isaac. We glorify in the sin of another so that we might get a taste of it from a distance without having to feel too dirty ourselves. So we have a friend or co-worker or just a character on a TV show that we can enjoy from a distance because there's a part of us that's kind of attracted to what they do, say, think, or, or how they behave, but we would never want to go do it ourselves firsthand. That's what you see with Isaac and Esau. Then there's a second category. Another time we'll mimic the world's sinful pattern, but we just moderate the dosage. So while the world engages in X-rated behaviors or X-rated sins, we will settle for the R-rated or maybe the PG-13 rated version of the same. And then there's a third style. Other times we simply redefine the sinful behavior or desire. We give it a different name. Perhaps we even go into scripture and try to find something that justifies it and supports it. And then we adopt it as if it's a good thing all along. The prosperity gospel is a great example of that today. The way some Christians give license for worshiping money, even though the Bible plainly says not to. But they turn the Bible on its head and twist verses so that they can leave from their Sunday sermons about the need for wealth and prosperity, feeling good about the desire. That's the same sin the world chases after. We've just reclassified it into something called the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. My point in all of this is we know what's driving Isaac's behavior because we know the feeling of it, at least in some sense. He loves Esau's smell because it's the smell of adventure. It's the smell of human strength and achievement. It's the smell of fleshly rebellion. And Isaac loves the son that fills that fleshy void in an otherwise godly life. It's a wise and mature Christian who can recognize this pattern in their own life. Take an inventory. Ask yourself, are you indulging in some sin because it satisfies your fleshly desire to rebel? But it doesn't cross some ultimate line so you can still feel safe in it and still feel approved. Folks, the safety, the supposed safety is a lie in itself. There's no such thing as safety in sin, even in little sins. Look at Isaac. Did he ever stop to consider that his favoritism for Esau and for Esau's sinful nature would cause him, Isaac, to rebel against God and in the process bring his family nearly to ruin? Did he ever add that up in his mind and take stock of that? I guarantee you he didn't. So what calamity will our little rebellions bring? Why even find out? (laughs) Let's just put them aside. I said this verse is so powerful because it combines two things. I said it combined the sin of man 
with the sovereignty of God in one verse. Well, we just covered the sin part, obviously. Isaac's sin is on display here. He's enraptured by the smell of the field. But where's the sovereignty? Well, I want you to notice Isaac's concluding statement in that same verse. Verse 27. He says the smell of his son was so pleasing because, he says, it's the smell of a field that's been blessed by the Lord. Now, we know what he meant. He simply meant a fruitful field with game and lots of things to harvest. And that's what Isaac meant. But remember who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to Esau. He thinks he is, but he's not. Who's he speaking to? Jacob. And even though he doesn't know it, his words are exactly true, prophetically true concerning Jacob. They're not true if they were spoken to Esau, but they are true for Jacob. Jacob is just like a field that the Lord has blessed. You know the word field in Hebrew? It's the word sedah, which is the word country, nation. Jacob is a nation blessed by the Lord. What he just said is absolutely true. Jacob is the man who will one day be called Israel. And Israel is in fact a field or a land or a nation that is blessed by the Lord. This is the sovereign choice of the Lord playing out even in the moment. Think about the irony of this, the great irony of this moment. Jacob was the son to be blessed just as God directed. And even though Isaac here is operating entirely in his sin, 100% flesh driven in this moment, Nevertheless, he is speaking and acting according to God's holy and eternal decree. Absolutely in alignment with what God is about to do in this man, Israel or Jacob. Absolutely in alignment with God's prophetic plan for the nation that comes from him. And every word he just spoke is absolutely true. But in his mind, he was speaking about somebody totally different. I find it helpful to remember this verse, Genesis 27, 27. You can't get much easier than that. 27, 27. Because anytime I'm confronted with tragedy, anytime I'm confronted with that age old eternal question, which is how can there be a loving God and yet this thing or this circumstance could happen? Every time the enemy finds some new way to bring depravity among men. I mean, if you read the papers lately or the news on the web or whatever, It's just stunning. How many more ways can parents be evil to their children? How many more ways can children be evil to to someone else? It doesn't seem to have a limit anymore, does it? It just seems to be getting worse by the day. Through it all, remember Genesis 27, 27, because God's will is never challenged by any degree of sin. None of that sin can rise to the level that it stops God's plan, his purpose. And even though God has declared in this moment, Jacob will be blessed. And Isaac, for his part, has decided it will go to Esau instead. No amount of Isaac's sin stopped it from going where it should go. And so now Jacob's lied three times and the deceptions have convinced Isaac that Esau is in fact the one in the tent. And so now has come the time to pronounce the blessing. It starts in verse 28 and goes to verse 29. Isaac says, now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. Now, as you look over this blessing, it's very simple. Just two verses. You're going to notice right away at the start of it, Isaac invokes the name of the Lord. 
Now, that's the main feature in this blessing that tells us it is a prophetic pronouncement. I'm not altogether sure what was going through Isaac's mind. We've already established he had a different person in mind. So who knows what he was thinking altogether? But we know that in the way this is spoken, everything that is said here is true. It all becomes true concerning Jacob. So in hindsight, we have no doubt whatsoever that this was a statement of God speaking through Isaac. So whatever was coming out of Isaac's mouth, whatever was bouncing around in his head right now, is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit according to God's will. And we can see it clearly because these words were indeed prophetic. Everything that is spoken here has or will come true concerning not only the man Jacob, but his people, the nation of Israel. Look at it beginning in verse 28. Jacob is promised here that God will give him great blessing in heaven and on earth. That reference there is the dew of heaven. That is to the favor of God. And then the fatness of the earth is a reference to the, the best portion of the world of what is available on earth. And then the reference to grain and new wine is simply to emphasize he will enjoy great provision from God in the course of time. Those are all perfectly accurate statements concerning Israel at various points in history. It's primarily, though, a statement of Israel in the kingdom. I want you to notice that it's not just about the specifics of Israel or Jacob in his daily life. It's also about the nation of Israel, the people of Israel overall, the history of Israel. And then in verse 29, you see more of that near term and far term prophetic fulfillment. People are to serve Jacob. Nations will bow down to him. He will master his brothers. And then more specifically, his siblings will bow down to him. But that's also a statement prophetically about Israel. Israel, ultimately, in the kingdom, will see all of these things be true. Isn't it interesting that Isaac words this promise saying, your mother's sons will bow down to you? Do you gain there an insight into the conflict between the mother and the father and their respective children? Let's put it differently. Let's put it the way it was actually being thought in Isaac's head. What Isaac is saying, make Jacob bow down to you. That son of Rebekah, the one she wants to see on top. <laughs> now she's going to be in for it because you've just been blessed with being the most powerful, the patriarchal authority in the family. And what did he just do? He just gave that authority to Jacob. I find it ironic that God can take our sin and use it to accomplish exactly what he wants. Isaac speaks these statements with the power of God and all of these statements come true, but they only come true for Jacob. None of these things come true for Esau. And yet Isaac's convinced that's who just received them. He asks God to ensure Esau is the most favored son. Esau gets the patriarchal authority. Esau is blessed by those who bless him. Esau would see curses on any who would curse him. That God would give Esau the greatest of everything on heaven and on earth. That's what Isaac expects for Esau. But because he said this the way he said it, Isaac excludes any blessing for Esau. For the one who will come later, for the second son. He gave so much to Jacob and gave no room for anyone else. That when the time finally comes for Esau to come to the tent, as we'll see next week, and announce himself, and for the deception to be uncovered, both Esau and Isaac are going to be distraught. Because in the way this is pronounced, Isaac leaves himself no option for Esau. None. 
This is where we get to remind ourselves that sin has consequences. God turned all of that sin to the purposes he had in view for Jacob. And at the same time, held both Esau and Isaac under his chastisement. For now there would be no blessing, no wiggle room. There's no loophole in this such that Isaac could come later and say to Esau, well, there's still this for you, my son. There's nothing. Note the flesh-driven nature of Isaac. Note how this is a flesh-driven moment. It began with Isaac wanting to be fed with a favorite meal. Rebecca then hearing the exchange in the tent, hatching a plan to fool her husband by his limited senses. Isaac then using all his senses minus his sight to try to discern what was really happening. Hearing, touching, tasting, smelling. Taken together, it's all just the flesh. None of them listening to the Lord. None of them relying on the Spirit. And in the end, the Lord gets everything he wants his way anyway. A remarkable display of God's will being done through the lives of men despite their sin. Take some encouragement in this today. We will make mistakes. We will sin. We do every day, by and large. We don't want God to excuse it. We don't want to excuse it ourselves. We never want to let God's sovereignty become our excuse for saying sin doesn't matter. It does. But remember from this story that God is more powerful than our sin and he can bring about the good he has planned regardless, and he will. But also remember, there will be consequences. So we have a choice in the way we live our life. We can choose to be obedient, see his good plan come out without our sin and avoid those consequences. Or we can be selfish and disobedient, still see his good plan come about, but suffer consequences in the process. Seems to me to be an easy choice, doesn't it? Doesn't seem like there's even a close second. Isaiah said it best, Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. We'll finish the chapter next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll conclude for the day. Heavenly Father, it's a sobering message, Father, anytime we're confronted in Scripture by the reality of sin and, and the way it destroys lives. Each of us, Father, have been saved from the penalty of sin by our faith, and we're thankful for that. You've done that work of mercy in our hearts, and we give you, Father, all the glory for it. But you know, as we've been taught already in Scripture, that our sin is ever-present in this body for as long as we have it, and, and so it's still a struggle to be obedient. So I ask, Father, that you would give us the strength, the heart, the courage, to make the right and proper decisions in our everyday life so that we would be pleasing to you, trusting in all the ways that we may serve you for good or for bad, you will turn it to the good that you have intended. But knowing, Father, that our sin has consequences. So give us a heart to to bring things about in the proper way. Thank you, Father, for a church and for a body of Christ here that is committed to your word, committed to each other in prayer and in love. But we're small, Father. We're weak. Let your strength come through. Let your purpose be met. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.